Uh, this morning, we're going to turn our minds to a new series. Uh, if you've got your Bibles with you, please go ahead and find 2 Corinthians. That's where we'll be today. If you're going to use the Pew Bible like I'm using, just grab it out of the chair in front of you, and it is page 966. 966. 2 Corinthians is where we'll be. I need to do a little preface before we dive into the series to kind of get it rolling a little bit. Uh, I'm really excited about this. This is one of the things that I'm really passionate about, something I really believe in, and something that I will like nerd out for a long time talking to you about. And so I'm, I'm, I'm reining myself in, just recognize that. Over the next several weeks, I'm holding back. So if you say, Jordan, that's too much. Man, just enough already. Just realize how much I could be saying to you, okay? Uh, this is a series is titled Restored, and that's a play on on something we have called ourselves. We are a part of a network of churches. There are churches all over the world that are connected, a non-denominational, Rocky start, non-denominationally to one another. We call ourselves the Restoration Movement. And we hail from the early 19th century Restoration Movements, plural. Because if you go online and you type in restoration movement and you go to like Wikipedia or something like that, don't do it now, right? But if you do that, lots of movements will show up. The Mormons show up. They called themselves the restoration movement. And they were birthed around the same time that we were, the early 1800s. But we've kind of clung to that, that title, restoration movement. We've held it all the way through. But it is sometimes, uh, in, in more academic circles, you'll hear us called the Stone Campbell Movement, and here is my graphic. This is Barton W. Stone. This is Alexander Campbell before he got the cool beard. I'm, I'm sorry, next time we'll have the beard pick because it's, it's tough. Um, and so uh, Stone, Campbell, movement, right? Everybody with me? This is, see, see how smart you are. This is going to be easy. Um, but I am, if you haven't, uh, if you haven't already figured out, uh, a cranky old man in a young man's body, and so I don't like change. Restoration movement is what I will say, um, and, and you'll, you'll put it on my gravestone, right? So just say that, that's, that's what we're going with. But I just wanted you to be aware of that. Um, what, what is happening here with this phrase restoration is, is not just my crankiness, but I also think it's a part of our DNA, who we are as a group of churches. And over the next four weeks, we're going to explore that. So if you're a guest here today or you're new to the church or you're not really sure what, what are you guys about, this is a great time to be here because that's exactly what I'm going to talk about. We are a group of Christians, Christians only, who believe fundamentally that the Bible alone provides the foundation by which God can unite the fragmented church. Right? You go down this, this row right here, how many churches you see? That God can unite the fragmented church so that the gospel can be preached to the nations. Does that make sense? That's just my summary statement of who we are. We are a group of Christians only. You will never find us calling ourselves anything else. Baptist, Presbyterian, anything like that. We are Christians only who believe the Bible alone provides the foundation by which God can unify his people, his church, so that we can do what we are supposed to do, which is to declare salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what we exist to do. Jesus commissioned the church to do this. When you open up if you, with your New Testament, when you open up the book of Acts, that's what we see the New Testament church doing. And then when you get to the letters, because you have the Gospels, you have Acts, and then you have all these different letters, all of these letters are all wrestling over the same things. Because if you've been in church for any period of time, anybody been in church for, you know, a week, you will find, boy, that was poor showing. 
Wake up, everybody. Been in church for a week, you know that there are fights because y'all have a lot of different and very strong opinions, don't you? And so we need God to unify us, to bring us together. And that's what the letters are all about. Paul and Peter and John, they're wrestling with. You guys need to come together, love one another. Why? So the gospel can go forth. So the gospel can go forth. So the gospel can go forth. But if you call yourself something like a restorationist or a part of a restoration movement, what are you claiming? You're claiming two really important things. You're claiming, first, that something is tarnished. Here's our graphic. Paul chose this. I am not the car guy. I'm not going to pretend to be a car guy. Um, but we will use kind of cars as an illustration here in a second. But you, you have something that is tarnished, something that is run down, something that needs to be fixed up. And so you're claiming that something needs to be fixed. And you're also claiming that you have the capacity to do that fixing, that you're capable of doing it. And that is somewhat of a brash even offensive claim when you're talking about religion. When you say to somebody, hey, listen, you've been doing it wrong. You need to, you need to fall in line with what the scriptures say. We need, to, we need to restore something that has been lost. You're going to offend somebody. Like if you took a car, and when I was a kid, we didn't fix, uh, we didn't take the car to the, to the shop. I take the car to the shop. My dad never did that. He had this book. He always had these books with these manuals, and he just flip it open, and he could, he could fix anything. And I was just thinking about that. Imagine if, if, if I took that book in to the, to the mechanic um, and I said, I, my carburetor's broke. It's the only piece of the car I know. I don't know anything more about it. This is it. I don't know how you fix it. But I see him using duct tape and glue and I say, well, that might work. I'm assuming that's not going to work. Any car guys in here? That's not going to work, is it? Duct tape and glue on the carburetor, whatever that does. Uh, and I say, look here in black and white, this is not how this thing is supposed to function. Now, I could be correct, right? It's in black and white. I can see that this is not going to, it'll hold for a little while. Well, maybe it'll hold for a little while, but couldn't we do it better? What's that, what's that old mechanic going to say? Take a hike, kid. I've been doing this for 50 years, right? This is what I know how to do. Let me do my job. But what we could do, theoretically, since we have different ways of thinking about things, is we could go to the manual, the actual manual by which the carburetor was built. And we could say, oh, look, at here's how this piece works, and here's how this thing all fits together. And we could agree in that black and white what's there. Does that make sense, everybody with me? And so what we're claiming is that there are many ways in which the church is broken down. It just happens over time. You get used to things. How many times have you ever heard in church since... Some of you, maybe four or five, you raise your hand, you've been in church for a week. Well, that's not how we do it. You've heard that? That's not how we do it. Really? Where is that in script? Right? I mean, that's kind of our thing. My dad used to always just pound this into my head. Book, chapter, verse. Like, where is it at? And so, so what, we're, what we're claiming then is this. We need to go back to the scriptures. Because the scriptures are the black and white that can provide unity for the church. And that is what we're going to talk about. So this series of sermons may be offensive if you grew up in a different church. I'm just sort of acknowledging that. It is not my intention, nor was it our founder's intention, to be offensive or to, to tick anybody off or to say, you're wrong. You know, what we're attempting to do is to get back into Scripture, to restore, to go back to Scripture and say, what did they do? Because what they did was in line with what Jesus taught them. And therefore, if we're in line with them, then we're in line with Jesus. And, and we're closer to what he had in mind. Rather than our own human traditions, 
our own human ways of thinking, our ways of doing things. Does that make sense, everybody with me? Good. All right. So what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks, over the next four weeks, is asking, answering this question. What is being restored? What is being restored? I say is because I don't think we've ever got it down perfect. You go back to the early 1800s or 1900s or whenever, no one has ever perfected this. There is restoring and being restored. We're constantly going through this process of restoring, uh, of being restored and always restoring. That's what we're going through. And so what is being restored today? Today what I want to talk about is a simple plea for salvation. A simple plea for salvation. Another way to put it is what is being restored. What we are seeking, what we were seeking and what we are seeking to restore is the mission of the church to be unified and to declare the gospel to the world. That might be the least offensive thing I have to say this morning. Because you've probably heard something like that before. If you grew up in a church, maybe you went to a Baptist church, you went to a different church, you didn't go to this church at all. You've probably heard before, you ought to share the gospel with people. Anybody ever heard that before, right? I mean, we, we, we know this, it's a part of our thinking. It might be something even you heard growing up, and yet you know what? Statistics show us only 5 to 6% of churches in America are actually growing through evangelism. 5 to 6% of churches that it takes statistically 19 people in a church service. So uh, if you take all of, your church, all of your church attendance on a Sunday morning, you will need 19 people in order to get one new non-Christian to show up to church. That's how many people it takes to invite one person. And our statistics as a church, Oakland Drive Christian Church, is worse than that. We're not the 5%. This is real talk. What needs to be restored is a passion for the lost. What needs to be restored is a passion for God's glory. What needs to be restored is a passion for evangelism. What needs to be restored is a simple plea, because I know that you think to yourself, man, this is really tough, and I, I'm, really, I, I'm not good at this, and I don't know what to say today. I want to cure you of that, because you aren't asking people to do anything complicated. You're asking them to come to Jesus. You're asking them to come to Jesus. You're opening those dialogues. You're having that conversation. This movement, our churches began in the early, as I said, early 19th century, the early 1800s, and it was an explosion of evangelism. As people began to push for, if you remember your American history, at those times, Ohio was the Wild West. It still is a little bit. We were there this weekend. It's not great. The boss aren't here, are they? No, okay, we're safe. It's all right. We make fun of Ohio all we want. Uh, this is the frontier, right? They're pushing west. And this is what Stone and Scott and Campbell and all these different guys, what they're doing is they're going to that frontier and they're pushing forward and they're declaring the gospel, simple gospel message to people. Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and your sins will be forgiven and you will have the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Real simple. Real simple. And yet it was controversial, as we'll talk about in a bit All right, I want to look at scripture here this morning. I want us to see that the mandate and the power of this message is handed off to you. And I want you to be excited about it, and I want you to be able to take it out with you as we go. So our text today, I got it for you. We're going to be looking at several different places, but right here. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 says this. This is Barton Stone's favorite verse. Working together with him, then... 
we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Isn't that a heavy verse for a second? Isn't that a heavy verse? We just took communion. We just talked about the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, that we might have uh, reconciliation and peace with God. And what does Paul say from the gate? He says, don't take that in vain. Don't take that in vain. Don't let that be for nothing. For he says, that is God says, in a favorable time I listened to you. When we called out to God, he listened to us. In the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Right now, today. Now this passage in chapter 6, if you're looking at your Bibles, uh, begins the concluding thoughts that Paul has that that go all the way back to chapter 3. Chapter 3 through chapter 5 are kind of one big, long, lengthy argument about the power and presence of the gospel in our life. What it does. About the calling of the church to be evangelistic, to be focused on mission. I know calling might seem kind of like a... We, we use that language a lot as Christians, kind of Christianese. But let's say um, the president calls Randy. We need the best builder in the world... Because the aliens are attacking. We need the aliens in the sermon. I feel it right now. So the president calls. The aliens are attacking. We need the best builder in the world. I am calling you, Randy, to come and to build the shield, whatever it is that keeps the aliens at bay. Now, Randy is a great builder, but not the best builder, right? I mean, in the world, like life and death, the aliens are attacking. Should they call you or maybe somebody else? It's hard to admit. He found that difficult. But somebody else. Right? Because we might be really good at something, but it's ridiculous to say that, I, that any of us are the best in the world at this. And so for the president to call you and say, hey, I want to send you on this mission, you say, well, you know, if like the fate of the United States is at stake here, probably should call someone else. Right? It's ridiculous. Paul uses the same kind of language to try to get us to see how ridiculous it is that God has called us. He says, we have this treasure in chapter 4. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay, which is the equivalent, the ancient equivalent to our modern day sour cream Tupperware. Anybody do that, right? You clean out the sour cream and you keep the leftovers in it, right? You don't have to buy, you don't have to buy Tupperware that way, it's like you ladies putting your gold, your wedding rings, your diamond tennis bracelets in that instead of a, in an ornate box or inside of, a, inside of a safe somewhere where it's actually safe. Like it, it's ridiculous, but God has done that. God has chosen you. He has given you the message of salvation, and he's chosen you, and he's chosen me to be the one to deliver it to the world. What is this message that we're to proclaim? For we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. Can you proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord? Jesus Christ is present. Jesus Christ is CEO. Jesus Christ is in charge. Can you proclaim that to your friends? I like that. Yes, let's do that. To your friends, to your neighbors, to your family members, to your children, to your enemies. Good. That's what they did. That's what Paul did. Like Paul isn't doing something complicated. He's declaring Jesus is Lord of all. And he's living that out. We see him say he lives that out. For we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves your servants for his sake. Just as Jesus came 
not to be served, but to serve and to give his own life as a ransom for many. So Paul says, I exist to do one thing, declare Jesus Lord, and to prove that by how I love you, by how I serve you. We can do that, right? We can do that. This ministry that has been given to us is glorious. For he says, the light of God, light shines out of the darkness. The God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what do we do in light of this? We make it our aim to please God. That's our job, to please God. Well, what does it, what does it take to please God? What does the CEO of Nike want his employees to be doing? Making shoes? Yes. Selling shoes? Whatever their mission statement is, do that. This is our mission. Our mission is to make this product and to get it out there. Do that. What is the, what is the uh, I was going to say president, but that doesn't work. Superintendent? Principal. What does the principal of the school want her students and her teachers to be doing? They're supposed to be on mission, and they have different missions, don't they? Different tasks. But when, they, when the principal sees them all doing that, the accolades flow, right? That's, that's, what, that's what they're supposed to be. What, is, what does the president want his cabinet and his, his people doing? He wants them on mission. And when there's not, people get fired, and we have Twitter wars and all the CNN stuff. We're seeing that happen right now because there needs to be cohesion between the leader and the follower. There needs to be cohesion between the, the head and the body. And if Christ calls us forward to proclaim the gospel, if we're going to be a part of that, he wants to see us just do it, right? We make it our aim to please him. For we must appear, Paul says, before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. We're calling people. We're persuading them, he says in verse 11 of chapter 5. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We persuade them to see Jesus as Lord through our words and through our deeds. Through our, our words and through our actions. This isn't a persuasion out of fear. This isn't a persuasion out of anger. This isn't a persuasion to, to, to try to make the church bigger so we can say, look, we got a bigger church. Right? This, this isn't, the, this isn't the, mode, the mode that we're in. What What is the heart here? Chapter 5, verse 14. The love of Christ commands us. It is for the love of Christ that we do all this. It is for the love of God who saved us. Who revealed to us, as we read there, right here, now is the time. Now is the day of salvation. If you need redemption, today's the day. If you feel shame for the things that you've done in your past, today is the day. If you have brokenness in your life or in your marriage or in your family, today is the day. If you feel far from God and alone, today is the day. If you need redemption, salvation, change, reconciliation with God, if you need healing and wholeness, today is the day. And it is our job to declare that to the world. That God is changing us and shaping us. If you want to experience that, and in light of this mission, everything else becomes meaningless. 
Everything else becomes different. Everything else is, is changed. Racism, as we've seen it so prevalent in our society, cannot exist inside the church because Christ died for all races. Nationalism, which we see so prevalent in the church, cannot exist in the church because Christ died for every person in every nation. Power based on wealth or position or coercion cannot exist in the church because Christ died for the rich and the poor. He, di- he died for the slave and the free. He died for the black and the white and the male and the few. That there is a new great leveling in which those high mountains, I love the prophecy. You see this in, in Zechariah's song and in Mary's song and the coming of Jesus and the coming of John the Baptist. That, that the great mountains are brought low and the valleys are brought up. I don't know if you think you're a mountain or a valley, but in the church and in Christ, we're all on the same plane. God has leveled it so that we might all stand before him as sons and daughters and brothers and sisters brought through grace. So we declare from now on we can no longer regard other people. We can no longer regard reality from a human point of view. Everything has changed. The way we used to view the world through our human prejudices and our collective thinking is now shattered and broken. And now there is a new way to see reality because in Christ all things are being made new. And yet there are so many very, so very many barriers that we place up to this simple declaration. So many barriers. Back in the day, in the early 1800s with, with uh, Stone and, and these other guys, especially with, with Stone, who had been doing a lot of reading of, of his work in preparation for this and for some other things, um, wanted to just preach the gospel. He wanted to preach the message. Come, uh, come to Jesus. He wanted to worship with other Christians. He wanted to see a great unity between all of these different people who claimed Jesus but had these little differences in theology. He wanted to see that washed away in a church praising God together, going forth in mission together. And yet, and this might not mean anything to you, it's okay if it doesn't, and yet he did not teach enough about Calvinism. He was a Presbyterian, and so he was brought up on charges and about to be dismissed from the Presbytery um, until he said, you know, I, I'm just going to preach a simple gospel. That, that's what I'm here to do. That's what God's called me to do. And he just sort of removed himself from the denominational structures and hierarchies. They're very formal divisions in those days. We don't have those formal divisions anymore. Uh, there, there are some divisions or differences between us and the Lutherans next door. But if I invited a Lutheran next door to come over and have lunch with me, he probably wouldn't throw rocks at me. Right? We kind of get along a little better these days. Our divisions these days, the obstacles that we put up to this simple gospel message these days are much more informal and, and so they're much more insidious because they're harder for us to see. A lot of them have to do with our American culture which kind of creeps into our own minds and into our own lives. The two that I'll, 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 I'll just share quickly that I see, uh, the first one being the most controversial and that being politics. My goodness, if I saw more energy into declaring the gospel as I did into people deciding and declaring their political affiliations, the world would be a much different place. The church would be a much different place. And I don't care if you're a progressive this morning or conservative, you're both just as guilty as the other. Just as guilty as the other. We have progressives who are, who've got all of this energy and they're, they're pushing for, for, for change and they want to do good works. And good works are great, but good works are not the same thing as kingdom works. Now you can feed the poor, but if you don't tell them that Jesus saves, 
the message is lost. Right? The message is lost. And conservatives, who I know are so busy offending liberals that they'll never have a chance to preach the gospel, and they might say to themselves, fine, fine, I didn't want to preach the gospel to liberals anyway, which seems to be our attitude many times. Shame on you. You should be ashamed of yourself. What we should be focused on is our mission. And what's our mission? Our mission is to declare the gospel. Anything that prevents me from declaring the gospel to someone else isn't worth the fight. The other problem we have is proxies. In America, even if you're here today and you're saying, well, I'm not, I'm not wealthy, you're rich by comparison. Like, no one here in America has any idea what poverty looks like. If you go to Mexico or Myanmar or someplace, like that, you see poverty with such, such deep and devastating effects. But we have the ability to send money to people and say, do mission for us. And that's great. I, it's wonderful that we send missionaries. And, and we have so many wonderful missions that we support. But that doesn't remove the responsibility from you to declare the gospel to the people that you know. We have other proxies. I'm a proxy. Paul's a proxy. Our el- elders are a proxy. When we know the church is doing it, our youth ministry is a proxy. You say, well, you know, I'm giving money to the church. Great. We need it, right? We need it. But we are not a proxy for the mission that God has given you. You have a word to speak into someone's life that I cannot speak because I neither know them nor have the relationship that you do with them. You have the ability to speak salvation into somebody's life. And if you don't do it, no one else will. The thing we have to understand that we've forgotten is that there is no plan B. That the church is the avenue for the message of the gospel to go out. If the church doesn't proclaim the gospel, if Oakland Drive Christian Church, if you don't proclaim the gospel, it doesn't go out. There is no plan B. God put the message in this jar of clay, in this sour cream Tupperware container, and said, you go out. I commission you. You declare the gospel. I don't know who that is in your life. There's, there's too many people here for me to be personally involved in all of your things. I don't know who it is. You need to make that decision. You need to make that call. It is in your lap to be in prayer for the people you know and praying earnestly every day that God will give you the opportunity to declare the gospel to that person. Who is it going to be? Who is it going to be? What will you set aside so that you can do what you need to do to proclaim the gospel to others. Now, this doesn't leave us borderless. We have this uh, old phrase. Look at, look at your Bibles there, verse 3. See that Paul says this here. I forgot to mention this. This isn't the Bible, so I wanted to. Paul says, after he talks about this favorable time, this, this day of salvation, he says, we put no ob- obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. You have a ministry. Every one of you has a ministry. And I, I have a ministry, and, and it's not just here, but, but all of the relationships that I have out there in the world during the week. That ministry that I have, that ministry that you have, God is going to call us to an account on that concerning that ministry. And he's going to say, did you do well with the ministry I gave you? Did you do well with the ministry that I gave you? And Paul says, I'm not going to put up any obstacle that I don't have to. This doesn't leave us borderless, though. We have this old slogan. Um, 
We didn't create it, and you probably heard it other places, but we've made it most promul- we promulgated it more than I think any other church I've ever heard of. Uh, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity, or all things, love. That there are many opinions about theological issues, and, and Calvinism was one of them for Stone that he was wrestling with, and, and he was wrestling with some of those things, but, but he said, you know, it, when it comes to proclaiming the gospel and somebody coming to salvation, they don't need to have all of those five points down. We don't need to, we don't need to engage in that, in that mission that I've been given. While we might talk about those theological issues, we talked about the end of the world last week, about Different churches have different perspectives about how Jesus is going to come back. And those are all interesting and fun to talk about. But in the end, do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Right? That's the question. That's the mission. The Lord's coming back. Like we, We've got that figured out. I mean, that's there. We don't need to argue about that. We can talk about it. But ultimately, the essential bit there is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is returning. The non-essential bit we can hold with loose hands. I can allow Paul to think differently than me on a subject. That's fine. Scott and I can disagree about stuff, and we have. And we do disagree about things all the time. Jack and I, I'm calling out all the elders all of a sudden for some reason. <laughs> that, was, that was unintentional. <laughs> but we can have disagreements all the time. And that's fine. Because in, in essentials, what do we have? Unity. Unity. And in all things, charity. All things love. Whether we're accepted or not accepted. Whether we're listened to or we're spat upon. Whether someone cares or says, you know, I'm really not interested in your, in your thing. Cool. We can have love. You know, it's, it's so interesting that there, there's a lot of things that the church is known by. Some of it's fair and some of it's unfair. Uh, but I would like for us as a church to be known for our love. I would like for us to be known for our charity for our willingness to hear somebody else out, for our willingness to, to disagree with somebody without being hateful, for our ability to really pour into one another's lives and pouring into the lives of other people out there. How long did it take you to become the Christian you are today? How long did it take you to grow up? And if you look back on your life and you see all of the mistakes that you've made, what if somebody had given up on you or been harsh with you, or shut you down, or shut you out along that way, would you be where you are? I'm where I am because so many wonderful Christians put up with a terrible person. <laughs> because they gave charity and love to me when I really didn't deserve it. And that's what we ought to be. That's what we're called to be. The kind of people who can walk alongside someone and continue to give them the truth, continue to give them the essentials, continue to call them, today is the day of salvation, today is the day you need to turn to Jesus, today is the day that you need to let that sin go, while at the same time not being offended when they come back at us and say, no thanks, no thanks, no thanks, no thanks, and still being able to walk with them. Parents, you understand what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Why can't we do that with people who aren't our blood? Right? So what I am calling you today, what I want you to see us striving to restore, not just back then but today as well, and this is something that I'm working on in my life and you're going to be working on in your life. What we are seeking to restore is that simple plea, that plea that comes from our lips all the time, every new person that we meet, trying to find a way to share with them this good news of the gospel because Jesus changes life. 
He changes life. Man, I can't imagine how terrible, if I'm a terrible person now, how terrible would I be if it wasn't for Jesus? Like he has changed everything about the way that I see people. He's changed the way that I live. He changed the way I feel. He changed the interactions between me and my kids and my wife. And, and he continues to come at me and say, Jordan, you are so wrong. Fix this. And I'm like, whoa, okay, I will. God changes everything. Do you want to see the people around you changed? They won't be changed until you declare to them, repent and turn to God. Jesus is Lord. Make him Lord. Make him Lord. As we... Uh, Come to a conclusion this morning. I just want to read these, uh, these words again. Letting them echo into our hearts and into our minds, into our ears. Letting it echo into your own heart and mind and ears today. Because today might be the day where you need restoration. Today might be the day where you need salvation. Today might be the day where you need to repent and get right with God. Because we've been given a ministry of reconciliation. We've been given the ministry of reconciling other people to God just as God, through Jesus, reconciled us to himself. Because today is the day. For he says, God says, in a favorable time I heard your cry. I listened to you. And in the day of salvation I reached down and I helped you. I sent my son to rescue you. I sent my son to bear your sins and to come from the tomb so that you might also be alive both now and forevermore. In the day of salvation, I have helped you. So behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. If you need that salvation, we'll have our elders down front. We'd love to invite you to come forward and to to pray with us as we walk with one another on the way. Let's stand and sing this song of praise to our God.